Kelly, I have got some fantastic news for you. All right, let's hear it, Josh. The next time we have a bet on the podcast, I know we always struggle to think of what the winner should get. Hmm. I have the perfect gift for the winner. Okay. Okay. What is it? For $24.99, you can buy an acre of land. Okay. Like in Oklahoma? (laughs) No, better than Oklahoma. Probably more interesting than Oklahoma. (laughs) What's better than Oklahoma? The moon. No, get out of here. (laughs) For $24.99, you can buy an acre of land on the moon. Okay. That's bananas. Um, It's very affordable. It is probably considering the person that's selling it (laughs) doesn't have to do anything. Just give you a piece of paper. There's a guy, Dennis Hope, who is the founder of the Lunar Embassy. And the Lunar Embassy, according to their website, so you know it's legitimate, is, quote, the only company, bold and underlined, in the world to possess a legal basis and copyright for the sale of land on the moon, Mars land, and other extraterrestrial property within the confines of our solar system. Did they go up there and plant some flags or something? How do they have the legal right to all of this stuff? (laughs) Well, apparently they went through uh, the proper channels and claimed this through various government agencies and all the government agencies just thought they were crazy, so ignored it. (laughs) And now, according to them, they have the legal right to own and sell uh, this extraterrestrial property. That's what happens when you ignore people who are a little off kilter. You wind up having to buy moon land from people. (laughs) And the best quote from their website is, we, the Lunar Embassy, are the only recognized world authority, not sure recognized by who, for the sale of lunar land and other planetary real estate in the known solar system. Please be advised that any others are copycat companies without authority soliciting your money for unauthorized products. Okay. <laughs> okay, dude. Uh, planetary real estate sounds like I'm going to buy like a sick mansion with absolutely no air to breathe. <laughs> I just think this is like the greatest and most cliche of all con artist lines. Be careful of all these other people who are trying to take advantage of you. And then he's going to sell us the moon Brooklyn Bridge while he's at it, right? and some beachfront property in Colorado. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. All right, Josh, next time we debate, let's say, I know this is like a a stretch. Let's say you win and you get... You get an acre of moon land. What are you going to do with your acre of moon land? All right. I know we're joking and haha, what kind of corn can you grow on the moon? But there's actually a lot of uses and the the number of uses is growing as technology advances to not just the moon, but space. And according to the Lunar Embassy, (laughs) all of the extraterrestrial property within the confines of our solar system. There's actually multiple uses for outer space. Not just harvesting moon cheese. (laughs) No. Some of them, which we'll be talking about in today's episode, as we 
explore ownership of the celestials. We will cover things like nationalism. It's just cool to go up there and land on something because it's nice to be able to say you did it first. We'll talk about scientific research, corporate use of space, military use of space, led up by Steve Carell. And last of all, a little look forward into potential habitation of space. It seems like like space itself, this discussion could be limitless. <laughs> oh, that was, a, oh, that was a good one. I like that. We didn't have that scripted for our listeners. No, I'm very smart. Kelly came up with that right on the spot. I got to give her credit. It seems pretty clear that in the past at least half century or so, the potential for what is out there has exceeded a lot of our expectations. I think prior to that, most people just assumed there were some planets and stars and it was something interesting and novel, but not really anything that we could utilize. It was just empty space, except for a few celestial bodies that are orbiting around a sun. Yeah, I think two things. One, our technology is advancing so we can stay out there for longer. We can observe more of it and potentially we can get further out into it, land on Mars, for example, and who knows past that. And the other thing is we're running out of stuff here. So if for no other reason, out of a sense of desperation, I think people are starting to think, uh, what can we ruin next? That's the, that's the spirit. <laughs> so let's start. We've got our list here. Let's start with the idea of nationalism. Probably the simplest one, because you don't actually have to necessarily own or take or mine anything. But there's something to be said. You know, that space race is a really big deal at certain parts of history. Something to be said for just being the first person to plant your flag on the moon or in a Hollywood studio, depending on who you ask. I think the peak of the nationalism that surrounded space itself was also kind of a proxy war for the Cold War. I think that's pretty evident when you look at the countries that were involved in trying to get to space first, being primarily the United States and the Soviet Union. And I think Russia is a good example, actually, and China might potentially be another good example. Those two, along with the U.S. being the major actors, at least currently, that have the ability and and resources and interest to get up into space. These three are all good examples of how nationalism, it might seem innocent at first. Hey, we got here first. We're proud of ourselves. You know, good job. Pat ourselves on the back. That nationalism can very easily turn into real policy implications. Uh, If Russia says it is a point of national pride that, for example, Ukraine does not become part of NATO, or if China says, for example, it is a point of national pride that Tibet is a part of China, threatening those nationalist sentiments results oftentimes in real, physical, sometimes violent backlash from those nations. It's very possible that our terrestrial antipathy towards each other could extend to what we actually plan to do once we get onto the very small surface of the moon. Mm. So nationalism is a benefit of space travel, but also potentially one of the dangers of space travel too, depending on what country, how serious they get about it and what they're willing to do to protect what they have now decided is their right. It remains to be seen whether or not 
nationalism will really extend to the upper limits of the atmosphere and beyond. But so far, despite the fact that we did have a space race, most actual exploration and advancements that pertain to space have been generally pretty cooperative between nations. That's true. And I think that leads us nicely to our second potential benefit of space exploration, and that would be scientific research. And I think this is probably the thing over the last at least 25 years or so that's been the main takeaway from space through work that's been done on, for example, the International Space Station. And all that delicious tang that we got because of the astronauts. Tang and Velcro. (laughs) Velcro. Well, that actually brings me to a little game I invented for you. Okay. All right. And it is, can you tell which of these inventions are a result of the space program or not? Ooh, if I, if I get this perfect, can I have an acre of the moon? You can buy your own acre of the moon from a guy who totally has the rights to sell it. All right. Let me play this game. Let's hear it. Okay. I have a, a list of items here. Just tell me, was it the space program or was it not the space program? Okay. All right. All right. Cell phone cameras. No. It was the space program. Damn it. I'm a, oh, there goes my plot of land on the moon. I thought that was Steve Jobs. <laughs> you're not going to like the next few items here. But if you're me, it's pretty obvious why these are on the list. Okay. Menstrual cups. Yes. Nope. That was actually designed by an actress in the 1930s, Leona Chalmers. That's probably because women can't be astronauts. No. And when they are astronauts, they get sent up for a very brief time with 100 tampons. Look it up. I've got a lot of research coming from this game. (laughs) Um, Temper slash memory foam for like mattresses. Oh, I think I've heard this one as related to space. So I'm going to say yes. It was. How about the emergency blanket? Yes. That was the the space program. How about, how about the computer mouse? No, that was the space program. All right. And finally, freeze dried food, freeze dried food. That would seem to be super useful in space. So I'm going to go with a yes on that one. And he finishes strong. Good job, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) So besides the list of items that we've just covered, some of which I got right. (laughs) There's been some pretty major discoveries that have happened in space and pretty major research that could have implications, not just now, but most certainly in the future, as we potentially need to find better ways to use the resources on this planet or, you know, doomsday scenario, leave this planet uh, to find somewhere else to habitate once we've ruined everything here. You're keeping up the optimism, I see. Mm-hmm. Some of the research includes just that sort of question of what happens if we can no longer live on Earth. So there are projects such as trying to produce food in space, growing plants, seeing how plants actually do in a zero gravity environment, and potentially in a, a situation where there might be a different level of gravity like Mars if we do have to live there someday. Obviously, there's some pretty extreme benefits that can be accrued from scientific research happening in space. And as you mentioned, so far, that's been largely cooperative between governments. And a lot of that has been centered around the International Space Station, or the ISS. For those of you who haven't heard of it or are less familiar with it, it is a modular space station in low Earth orbit. And its 
It's been around for a while. It's a multinational collaborative project involving five participating space agencies, NASA of the United States, Roscosmos of Russia, which sounds a lot cooler than NASA, just saying, JAXA of Japan, ESA of Europe, and the CSA of Canada. And of course, the Canadian one sounds the lamest. And on the ISS, the ownership and use of the space station is established by intergovernmental treaties and agreements. They do research here for things like microgravity, cancer and Parkinson's research, the space environment. They have a research laboratory in which they conduct studies on astrobiology, astronomy, meteorology, physics, and a bunch of other ologies. Perhaps most important long-term implications of this is the fact that the ISS is suited for testing the spacecraft systems and equipment required for possible future long-duration missions to the moon and Mars, which is going to be real great when we have to move there. Do you know how long it takes to get to Mars if we were to like actually go there in order to live or I guess visit? To plant our flag? Mm -hmm. I have, oh wow, let me guess. If I told you how far away Mars was, would that maybe help you formulate a duration of time? Yeah, let's do that. It is like 300 million miles. Okay, that is not helpful at all. (laughs) I'm going to say five years. That's not that ridiculous of a guess. It looks like the current estimates put it at about six to seven months for people to get to Mars, but that's like a really long time on a very long road trip with people you might not like. Anyways, all of this research is happening. A lot of it is happening on the International Space Station, and a lot of it is happening cooperatively, which for this question of ownership of space seems to bode well that there's the potential that we don't necessarily have to fight with each other over who gets what, but we can't keep things too optimistic. So to be clear here, this International Space Station is divided into two sections. There is the Russian orbital segment, which is operated by Russia. And then there's the United States orbital segment, which is operated by the US, as well as not so obvious this time, as well as the other states. So four of the participating state agencies, the US, Japan's, Europe's, and Canada's, are taking care of one wing of the ISS, while Russia, because they're super cooperative with everything right about now, is controlling their own segment of the space station. We can't just have one nice thing that we all just do together and get along doing it's (laughs) we were so close here (laughs) and to make things worse exacerbated obviously by recent events russia is already considering splitting off to transfer operations to their own independent station figures and i think some of this has to do with the timeline that we that we talked about earlier in terms of just thinking about how useful space is up until now There's some little benefits here and there, but nothing that would seriously shift or threaten the geopolitical infrastructure here on Earth. But as we start to make more significant discoveries, and now there's more at stake, it kind of makes sense in a really jaded, sort of pessimistic way. It makes sense that all of these international agreements and this international cooperation starts to break down. That's, I think, what makes some of this research 
slightly ominous, perhaps, because the research itself has been good and it's hard to find a downside to research. But when you're talking about international entities that have egos at stake and different interests at stake, there are potential conflicts that can emerge when we're talking about the money that can come from this, the national pride that can come from this, the military advantage that comes from this. And then the research itself, only a few countries are actually conducting out of all of the countries that exist on earth. So does this research only reinforce the wealth of the countries or status or military power or whatever? Does it only get reinforced because the countries who can afford to conduct it are the ones who are up there doing it? Mm-hmm. Similar to intellectual property, if you have all of these agencies working together right now to make discoveries, what happens when somebody like Russia decides, okay, we have a good baseline from which to advance our research. And from this point forward, though, we're going to break off, take what we've got and sort of run with it and not share it to anybody. Is there a moral claim that the other agencies have to discoveries Russia makes based on the research that was meant to be cooperative? And even if there is, is there a way to enforce that? Well, let's say that they actually do agree on sharing all the research that they create or, you know, have breakthroughs completing when they're up there. It is still only five countries. And if there is some sort of advantage for having this, do they share that with the other countries that did not conduct the research? You know, we talk and joke about things like Tang and that ultimately there was a profit motive to get Tang out there in the public. I used to drink it as a kid. I loved it. Mm -hmm. But there are things there that might have a strategic advantage that don't make sense to share with other countries, even though ostensibly the things that are up there are for the benefit of all humankind. And that leads us probably nicely away from governments for a second when we start to bring up profits and products and into one of our favorite subjects for the show, which is corporations. And just the corporate interests that exist in space. We talked about the International Space Station. For a long while, it was government agencies and, and government technology and government research that was dominating space. But now that's actually shifted to where the majority of space activity is being conducted by private organizations. I love corporations. They're delicious. <laughs> this episode gives us an excuse to talk about our favorite dude who blasted himself up into space in a long white I just want to leave that hanging for a second so you can (laughs) hear the awkwardness echoing. (laughs) Okay, we'll get to him. But let's start at the beginning. And the beginning in this case would be the first commercial use of outer space, which occurred in 1962 when the Telstar 1 satellite was launched. And this was launched in order to transmit television signals over the Atlantic Ocean. So, 1962, we have had stuff in space for a pretty long time. I did not know that that's how long we had things in space. And I imagine that once the lifespan of technology from 1962 runs out, they go up there and fish it back out of the sky, right? (laughs) Well, of course, we want to keep uh, space pristine, just like we do with all of our natural habitats here on Earth. Yeah, the oceans are crystal clear and plastic free. Mm. So actually sarcasm being fairly obvious here, this Telstar 1 satellite lasted for like six months 
when radiation from nuclear testing basically fried its systems. And it is useless, non-functional, and very much still in space. It is still orbiting Earth as the first piece, I suppose, of space trash, as I like to call it. I just love the phrase space trash. I think it would make a great drag name. <laughs> and now coming to the stage, space Ladies trash. And gentlemen, welcome to the stage, space trash. We'll get to space trash and the environmental ramifications a bit later. But since that first commercial use of space in 1962, if we fast forward a bunch of years so that I don't have to do math in my head, in 2019, there was an estimated $366 billion in revenue earned in the space sector. That is a bananas amount of money. This is coming from things like telecommunications and internet infrastructure, Earth observation capabilities, national security satellites, and more. All of that is generated largely from operations which do not require a lot of people to go up into space and certainly no joyriding. But more recently, developments are showing billionaires taking pretty fun little trips, day trips, hour-long trips, or what have you, into space in the form of tourism. I think space tourism is at least the latest incarnation of corporate use of space. So these space tourist trips started in Russia, once again, in 2001 to 2009. And this was done by a company that was called Space Adventures. Very creative. During the, that period of time, seven people were sent up into space and they spent between 20 to $25 million a trip. And in 2001 to 2009 money, that was a lot of money. It is. Yeah. Well, even now it's a lot of money, at least for me. <laughs> I'm saving my 25 million for something more exciting. Tang. Yep. Lots of Tang. Yep. Now we're seeing other companies and other people who have a lot of money who probably shouldn't have that much money also taking the tourist route to space. There are companies such as Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and SpaceX. And Blue Origin went up last year in July with Jeff Bezos for 10 minutes, during which some people in his company unionized. So that was really convenient. <laughs> And then last year, uh, also last year in October, uh, William Shatner got to go up for 10 minutes. Besides Blue Origin's trips with Bezos and Shatner, there was also SpaceX, which sent up four tourists, and they stayed up for three days, actually. So SpaceX is kind of winning this competition between Blue Origin. If Blue Origin sends people up for 10 minutes and SpaceX has got them up there for three days. And SpaceX also wins the best name category with their shuttle being called the Crew Dragon Resilience. They're just putting words together. <laughs> but they're cool words, dragon and resilience. It's <laughs> it like a Marvel like, movie. Yeah, it sounds like video games. It doesn't sound like something that I could potentially die upon reentry to the atmosphere writing in, in this device. And these, these corporations, though, I, I just don't see them making a ton of profit off of one or two people paying this much money for a 10-minute or even three-day trip. I really see this as laying the foundation for more in the future. And this is a way to just cover costs to start building up that infrastructure. Um, we already mentioned potential relocation of the species. 
habitation off of Earth, but also even just military infrastructure. There's implications there. And right now, again, considering that the United States, Russia, and China are the largest players in the realm of space exploration, obviously Russia at this exact moment, but the United States and China potentially in the future with controversies like Taiwan, what's happening in space, again, has implications for what could potentially be happening here on Earth. I could see that unfold in a couple of different ways. I think in conjunction with the private exploration and tourism, there might be an increased demand for the people who are going up there to have some sort of military protection or some sort of guarantee of what could happen to them up there, especially if they go up for many days and there are potentially a lot of other folks up there and it could get kind of hairy. I think that people feel more comfortable sailing in international waters, knowing that there are some form of military supports to make sure that they don't get like just killed by pirates. Right. Space pirates, I had, I, we, we went there. But then there's the actual geopolitical interests of military advancements in space themselves, independent of what the private sector does. There is territory up there. There is actual land on places like the moon, but the actual territory of zones of space itself might be in question. Mm. So we definitely need somebody to protect us from if, we, if we're floating through space and we come across the thousand sunny or any various pirate ships. And potentially, the best thing that came out of the Trump presidency was the Space Force. I cannot believe that it still exists past the time that he left office, but it legitimately does. (laughs) I was watching a YouTube video about it uh, in preparation for this. And the saddest thing that I saw potentially in that video was the little patch, the insignia for the Space Force that they put on somebody's uniform where whatever branch that they're in, you know, one of the real branches usually goes. And it was this plastic rubber looking thing that seemed to just be ironed on, but not completely ironed on. So half of it was like falling off of the uniform. Um, so I don't know how seriously to take this, but it, it certainly is a thing that was created And at least for now, it's a thing that's still around. That is shocking that they didn't pay more attention to the insignia and actually making sure it was like high quality. When my dad let me have his pea coat, he he took all those patches off because I hadn't earned them. Mm. So Mm -hmm. like the military is supposed to take those things like really seriously. And if they're just like half-assed, semi-ironed onto a uniform. I'm just going to laugh at the entire branch because they're not taking themselves seriously. I'm not going to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Well, the idea, however seriously they're implementing it, the idea is that the U.S. Space Force is a military service that will organize, train, and equip space forces, uh, you know, to defend us against space bugs or space pirates or space ninjas potentially. Um, Anyway, so to protect the United States and allied interests in space and provide space capabilities, this includes things like developing guardians, acquiring military space systems, maturing the military doctrine for space power, which is interesting in the context of this episode, 
as we said, as we see more and more the benefits that can be garnered from control over space, we have new documentation, new treaties, and just new mindsets developing over how various countries and organizations will interact with space. And so the Space Force is the organization that will protect all of our interests once we've decided what those are and how exactly we want to implement them. The Space Force has its own fact page. (laughs) And one of the reasons that it justifies its existence is that space has become essential to our security and prosperity, so much so that we need a branch of our military dedicated to its defense, just like we have branches of the military dedicated to protecting and securing the air, land, and sea. And I find that particularly interesting because the areas of our air, land, and sea that we protect are things that are actually in our sovereign control. So I wonder what the implications are for space based upon that, since we technically don't really own any of it. I'm not sure that's that's entirely true. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this a bit later, but we do have our military in portions of the sea that we don't control, international waters. And we, we do put military in areas that are controlled by other sovereign nations, although typically we're invited to do so. So maybe less applicable, but but I could see this being most similar to international waters. Even still, and I think we'll get to this, we still own some of the ocean. Mm-hmm. We don't own any of space, right? I do. <laughs> you own that acre on the moon. The moon. <laughs> okay, so I know that we're making fun of this, but there are some legitimate concerns here of, of just shenanigans that are taking place inside of space. So currently, Russia and China are harassing American satellites, whether that be governmental satellites or corporate satellites, including jamming a lot of signals and just interfering with them in general. I suppose this would be a subdivision of cyber warfare being carried out on our satellites that exist in space. So there's definitely at least the rumblings of conflict already going on inside of space. Certainly we would need something to defend our interests there. I like the idea of harassing a satellite and the satellites, hey, I'm just orbiting here. (laughs) Something comes by, pokes it. Literally, speaking of poking it, so China is putting up satellites with like robot arms and claws that can chase other satellites and and break them down. This is so stupid. (laughs) This is true, this is true. And Russia, maybe a little bit more seriously, has been, the the claim is, nesting weapons within their own satellites, and they've actually been blowing up their own satellites. So I think literally it's target practice. They're sending up target satellites, and then they're sending up weapon satellites just to test these things out and, and make sure that they could, if they wanted to take out the space material of a different country. And I don't know, that starts to get a little bit scary. They throw up a satellite. They say that it's there for communications or something. And inside of it are space guns. I don't, I don't know what to call them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Russian weapons doll. Yeah, literally. The, the space Trojan horse. As much as I, in particular, make fun of billionaires, and I will never stop doing that. There are still some advantages to having 
some of the things that they can provide to people because they have the resources. And I think that Starlink as a an Elon Musk product is an example of something that might actually benefit humanity. Mm-hmm. So Starlink is a subsidiary of SpaceX. And in the current conflict, speaking of potential aggression from Russia, in the current conflict in the Ukraine, Elon Musk and SpaceX and Starlink have donated terminals to Ukraine. And these have been set up in hospitals, energy companies, basically critical infrastructure in the country, specifically the Western part of it. This is where the population has doubled as people are fleeing from Russian aggression. And basically Starlink has, through the the system of satellites that exists, helped take pressure off of the overloaded internet infrastructure of Ukraine. So Elon Musk's hope was that this would be a premier provider of internet service across the planet through a satellite system. It's been super flaky so far, not very reliable. But here, in a real conflict on Earth with Russia attacking and undermining the infrastructure, which is probably the least of our worries, but undermining the infrastructure of Ukraine, Elon Musk has been able to step up because of the resources and the technology that he has as a private corporation in space and really help people really make a difference in this conflict that's going on right now. Fine. I will not make fun of him for the rest of the episode. (laughs) He gets a, he gets a temporary reprieve. Temporary. He still hasn't fixed Flint, which he said he would. So here it seems that Starlink is being used defensively. Ukraine Mm -hmm. is obviously protecting itself from Russian aggression, but this is where it gets scary. If Ukraine can use this defensively to support drone strikes and other attacks, there is literally nothing that would stop the United States or China or Russia if they develop the same technology from using it offensively. I think that's the fear we have with every military advancement is that we've created things for peaceful, defensive purposes and hope we never have to use them. And then they become threats to the existence of the rest of the world. I'm just waiting for them to weaponize Velcro. We've mentioned primacy as one potential way we're going to talk about to determine who owns space. Another very obvious way to determine who owns space is literally just who can hold on to it. And so if we see that we have research benefits from space, corporate benefits that could be derived from space, obviously military benefits that can derive from space, then this idea of establishing a space force, as funny as it sounds when you say it at first, maybe it's just the name space force. (laughs) It's such a stupid name. Mm. Yeah, it's bad. But the, the mission is less and less funny and maybe more and more serious the more we think about it. Maybe they could just rebrand it. Yeah, that might help a little bit. If the same person that named space force were to have named the army or the navy, Mm-hmm. What do you think they would have called them? Water guns. <laughs> that's better. I was going to go with boat battle buddies. Oh, that's good too. And, the, <laughs> and then the army marching friends in green. Mm, how about ground and pound? <laughs> that sounds very dirty. <laughs> so we've got ground and pound, no, boat no battle buddies, don't. and the space force. Why did they all sound wrong coming from you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 
So the last thing I think we want to talk about in terms of potential use for space is this idea, and this is hopefully in the future, habitation. We've touched on it a bit already, but what do we do if we get to the point that Earth is no longer habitable? Right. There are plenty of candidates for where we could live if we cannot stay on Earth, and they involve potential other planets or celestial bodies, if not just a giant space cruise ship. The first closest candidate would be the moon. Some of the problems are that it is small. And even though there is apparently quite a bit of water on the moon, the amount of infrastructure that would be needed to make that water usable and to actually grow food would be pretty substantial. Plus, we've got to get Dennis Hope to agree to let us use it. And just realistically, the size of it, if we've gotten to the point, let's say it's not nuclear warfare or some matrix apocalyptic style scenario that's forcing us to move, but potentially just overpopulation, which is inevitable, the moon and how small it is doesn't seem like a very good long-term fix. And neither does the next closest candidate, at least in terms of landing on Terraria, which would be Mars. Yeah, Mars is probably the most likely candidate for a more permanent non-Earth basis for humanity in the future. Although it is a pretty long trip, as we've mentioned, about six months, the planet itself has roughly the same length of the day. Um, It would probably need a pretty good dome or something to help create an atmosphere that would be habitable for people. There's also a theory that in order to get potable water, what can happen on Mars is to utilize greenhouse gases to basically create not global warming, Marsal warming and mm-hmm. melt the ice caps. And eventually that would probably get out of control and create some of the same problems we've seen on Earth. But, you know, that's a possibility. If there's water on that planet, that cuts out some of the question mark about whether or not it could support human life. I think the interesting question here, let's assume for a second that we do find a a feasible alternative. And even the alternative might end up being not a planet necessarily, but a space station or a space (laughs) cruise ship, as you've called it. Any of these options is going to have limited space. So the question is going to be, who is allowed to go? Who gets a spot? If you are in a situation like perhaps a a space station, there are going to be class divisions. There are only so many people that can be supported by the resources there. And there are necessarily going to be people who have to do the supporting of the people who are in those scenarios, like actually complete the labor that is required to sustain life in those scenarios. I also think that maybe the question that needs to be asked before we ask which individuals are going to qualify would be who's going to own or who's going to administer this space station or this planet, et cetera, because who gets up there might look very different depending on if it's governmentally run versus if it's run by corporations. A government might run a lottery where we decide randomly who qualifies. They might try to run some merit-based system to ensure we have, quote unquote, the best people up there to give our species the best chance of survival. Whereas a corporation is probably just going to say, hey, who can afford a ticket? And while the scenario where governments own 
our potential rehabilitation locations seems a little bit more optimistic. That's looking less and less likely because as travel, we talked about space tourism earlier, is being privatized, there's less and less incentive for governments to develop this technology. In fact, NASA now subcontracts out to SpaceX for a lot of the needs of their astronauts. Then it becomes purely about what is most profitable rather than what is necessarily in the interest of humanity. In the event that what NASA is subcontracting SpaceX for also helps humanity, that might be incidental, but SpaceX is purely concerned about the bottom line. Hmm. Maybe we get to a point where we can utilize things like eminent domain, take on some of the intellectual property of these companies, you know, for the good of humanity. But it certainly raises some questions about how we go about making these decisions, who deserves at the organizational level control over space, and then as a byproduct of that, who gets to use the resources of space on an individual level too. It brings us to kind of the last section here of the episode, which is where we ask the questions, how do we prioritize who and what we use space and the resources that we find there? Well, obviously you, you bought the acre of the moon. (laughs) That's true. And I think right off the bat, you know, on earth, we have this weird, speaking of imaginary things, borders that we've established where based on this invisible line, X government controls and makes rules for and has sovereignty over this plot of land. And a different government has control over a different plot of land. Is there a potential that we scrap that system as we go up into space and we have borderless space, no imaginary lines. Well, I would love it if we got rid of that concept on earth as well, because I think it's a basis for treating a lot of people less good than they deserve just because of where they happen to fall out of their mother. Why did I have to phrase it like that? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're talking about the theory that applies to this is the lottery of birth. So you're not far off. Even though we have borders on Earth, and unfortunately, it looks like they're going to stay that way, there are a couple of ways in which we've organized common space on this planet, which might be a precedent for how we can organize the way that we treat space as well. One of those models might be treating space a lot like we treat Antarctica, which is one of four global domains. Those are defined as the seas, the atmosphere, Antarctica, and space. And the way that space could work and the way that Antarctica does work do seem to have some similar psychological factors, the way that people treat them. Both have been defined within international regimes as spaces outside the territory of nation states and beyond the normative inhabitable zones of the human species. And I think that's what makes all these questions interesting. And while this might change for both of those places, the fact that nobody can live there right now takes away the easiest way to define who owns a place. If I Mm -hmm. inhabit a place, that is the easiest justification I can have for claiming ownership to it. But if nobody inhabits Antarctica, for the most part, nobody inhabits the deep sea, for example, or nobody inhabits space, we need to move to a secondary tier of justification for ownership. Additionally, the sea, Antarctica, and space are all governed by nearly universally signed international treaties that are originating around the 1950s. 
for Antarctica, that is the Antarctic Treaty System or ATS, which regulates international relations with respect to Antarctica, which is Earth's only continent that does not have a native human population. Although there are some people who live there as part of the observation stations that <laughs> are built on miles and miles of ice. So this was the first arms control agreement established during the Cold War, which set aside the continent as a scientific preserve, establishing freedom of scientific investigation and banning military activity. Additionally, Antarctica has many governments and private corporations which are conducting research there. The emphasis on everything relating to Antarctica is being a service to all and respect for the common good. This is similar to the International Space Station without the delineation between the Russian wing and the, the global wing. But there are different observation facilities in Antarctica that are run by different countries. Some of them do have a pretty big international representation there, but there are separate actual physical locations. So it could be, you know, a little geopolitical mm. battle down, <laughs> down on the South Pole. So this does seem like a, a, a decent model to base international agreements on. And there is an international agreement in place already. So it's not like we're making this up from scratch. There's the Outer Space Treaty, which was formed in 1967. And this would be, as it defines itself, the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. And it does things like prohibit nuclear weapons in space. So those Russian satellites that are nesting weapons are not allowed to nest nuclear weapons. Space, the moon, etc., can only be used for peaceful purposes. Space territories cannot be claimed by sovereign entities. They must be treated like common property or like international waters. And I think international waters is an, another interesting analogy here, similar to the Antarctic example, where there is the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea that defines ownership over the world's oceans and legitimate use of the world's oceans. But what's interesting about the unclose, that one doesn't work very well, does it? I thought it was unclos. Uh, unclos. That makes it sound very <laughs> Scandinavian. It sounds German, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so although the U.S. recognizes the unclos, it has not yet ratified it. And I think that potentially we might be moving in the same direction when it comes to the Outer Space Treaty. While the United States has ratified, recognized, and ratified the Outer Space Treaty, they also at the same time have implemented the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, also known as the Spurring Private Aerospace Competitiveness and Entrepreneurship Act of 2015. You get what they did there? Yeah. I got what they did there. They spelled out space as an acronym and it made me very mad. They are so clever. Anyway, what this does is it allows U.S. industries to, quote, engage in the commercial exploration and exploitation of space resources. And while it asserts that the United States does not, by this act, assert sovereignty or sovereign or exclusive rights or jurisdiction over or the ownership of any celestial body, it is quiet on the subject of resources 
and what we're allowed to do in terms of ownership with resources that are extracted from those celestial bodies? It seems like the American perspective on this space treaty is probably of benign noncompliance, like a lot of the other international agreements we've signed on to. I think if you're strictly reading the space treaty, it's probably not even cool that we planted a flag on the moon based on how it reads, but it seems like the United States is kind of selectively ignoring some of its, uh, the spirit of the law, perhaps. Yeah, and we did land on the moon literally two years after the Outer Space Treaty was ratified. Space Treaty happened in 1967. We landed on the moon in 1969. It leads us to the question, and I guess this summarizes most of the episode, if there's an argument now, we landed on the moon, China lands on the moon, Russia lands on the moon, the United Nations lands on the moon, Elon Musk lands on the moon, who gets it? Is it the organization that gets there first? I just had this mental image of you on your acre of moonland holding a pitchfork while like Elon Musk and all his cronies <laughs> charge at you. Get off my land. <laughs> that leads to another potential justification of who gets it is the person that buys it. Or in this case, since there's nobody to buy it from, maybe a corporation says, hey, we put the money into the research to get there. We built the space station that you want to get to now, or we developed a piece of the moon that you now want to live on. So since we put the money into it, or since we, you know, the equivalent of bought it, we're the ones that have ownership over it. It seems like no matter what the actual legal status is or ownership determination is, people like you and me are probably not going to get that much access to it. (laughs) I'm just guessing. No. And the other potential way of deciding, which doesn't help us out at all, would be military control. And this seems the most realistic. A corporation can say, hey, we built the space station or we built this development on the moon. But if a military comes in and takes it, not sure what they're going to do about that. So maybe military control, maybe Space Force is the way to go. I was going to say, maybe you should join the Space Force and then you can actively ensure you get access to that sweet, sweet space property. I would want a higher quality patch on my uniform if I was going to join the Space Force. I think that's a fair expectation. Obviously, our preference would be communal use. But at the end of all of this, Do you think that it's reasonable to hope that the international community would be willing to use space, whether it's habitate it, mine it, conduct research in it? Do you think it's reasonable to think that we would do that as a human species rather than trying to parse out the sections of all of those resources that we own as a corporation or as a government? Not as long as the personalities involved in making those decisions and carrying out those actions also have national and personal interests back on earth as well. I think the only time that we can effectively collaborate on the question of space is when it becomes important for our existence. If the earth literally does not support human life anymore and we have no choice but to work together or perish. I think a lot of the questions that space is looked to to potentially answer 
could be resolved on earth. The climate crisis could be handled if, if humanity agreed to treat it seriously. We could set aside differences and make good science happen here too. I just don't think that we're ever going to get to a point where we can set aside our flags and our weapons and our economic interests and make space this like peaceful bastion of humanity. I don't see it. Yeah, I definitely don't think that much is going to happen in space that's different than what's happening down here on Earth right now. And if that means that governmental and capitalist infrastructures are able to expand their resources and their control outside of our atmosphere, I think it's just an exacerbation of the situation that we already have. The one place where I think it would be interesting is if we do get to a point eventually where Earth is no longer habitable, or we at least reach a point where the planet can no longer sustain the human population, then we'll have some really serious questions to ask. And if we are incapable of rejecting these principles of borders or ownership that we've tied ourselves so firmly to here on Earth, I don't think that things look good for our species as we move out into the cosmos. One interesting question that we could ask here at the end of the episode to answer our questions would be, is there a sci-fi universe, literally, that you see as being the best possible iteration of what the human species would look like if we were to migrate completely and habitate space? I think in terms of the most hopeful and optimistic, it might be Star Trek, although I'm not well-versed enough in Star Trek to know if it's actually that ideal. It does seem like there's quite a bit of fighting that happens in the Star Trek universe. Star Trek does seem to give up to large part the idea of ownership insofar as they've rejected the concept of money, at least the Federation has, but there are very much still borders which is where a lot of those conflicts stem from between the Federation, the Romulan, them Klingons. Yeah, I don't think there's ever a depiction of anything that's truly borderless. God, even Roddenberry can't imagine a world without borders or a space without borders. Well, what do you think is the most ideal? No, I think you're right. I think that would be the most idyllic. And yet even that one still comes with those problems. It's almost like our problems are just kind of always going to be there no matter which physical locations we inhabit. Womp womp. And on that note. (laughs) I think that it might be telling that as opposed to Star Trek, all of the other popular series literally have conflict in their name. Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Is this just everybody thinking about space coming to the same conclusion that we have, that it's a little bit hopeless? Hopeless, but like really exciting. Like that stuff is all super fun. That's true. It's a return to the Wild West. And if you'd like to take part in some of the battles for space domination, just so you know, we'll link the website on our Facebook or our Twitter, both at Indubitably Pod, where you can join the U.S. Space Force and become a guardian. Do I even want to ask what a guardian is? Well, Kelly. The U.S. Space Force recruits the brightest minds in technology, aerospace, and engineering. Our guardians reach for new heights beyond the atmosphere 
as they protect our freedoms, imagine the impossible, and put it into orbit. Oh my God, how much are they paying you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, we once again, thank you all so much for listening as we talk about things that interest us and we hope also interest you. We hope to have you join us next time. And until then, to all mankind, may we never find space so vast, planet so cold, heart and mind so empty that we cannot fill them with love and warmth. Live long and prosper. Bye.